Audio rolling. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Your Thoughts Podcast. I've got Darren Schaefer here from Cooper Vortex. We're going to talk about some DB Cooper. I've got my co-host here, Harley Hirsch. That's welcome. me. This is the first episode with Harley. Yep, I'm new here. So welcome, Darren. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. So why DB Cooper? That's a great question. So uh, I used to live in Woodland, Washington, which would be the town closest to what would be the theorized drop zone where D.B. Cooper supposedly jumped out of the airplane. So it was just kind of a local story uh, growing up that I heard a lot. I was interested in it, you know, like I said, just because it was local. It happened nearby. Uh, and then I got this book as a gift from my wife, uh, Skyjack. And it was all about D.B. Cooper. I read that book, and in it, it sort of leads to another book about D.B. Cooper. So I ended up finding that book, reading it as well. Uh, And then, you know, 10, 12 books later, uh, I'm thoroughly involved in the case, checking it out on online forums, uh, just reading everything I can about it. So that's kind of how I got into (laughs) D.B. Cooper. So do you view yourself as a citizen sleuth? That's a good question. I'm not sure. Uh, When I started this, I would definitely say no. Now, having been in this for five years, I guess the answer would be yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think think so. Just judging from your your show, it seemed like you had a lot of high-profile people come on, like a lot of uh, journalists. Yeah, I've been really lucky. Uh, The people I've reached out to uh, have been willing to participate. Uh, in the project with me when I f- first had the idea, uh, I thought, okay, I would, I'll do this if I can get these two people. Um, they're so important to the case, uh, Bruce Smith and Robert Blevins. And, and I thought, who were those people? Uh, Bruce Smith is a journalist. Uh, he wrote what many people consider to be the definitive book on it. Uh, DB Cooper, a case study of the FBI. Uh, and then Robert Blevins, who has gotten a lot of media attention, um, and it is a big name in the case. And I reached out to both of them out of the blue. Hey, will you be a guest on my podcast that doesn't exist yet? Um, and they both reached back out to me and said, yeah, I'd be interested in doing that. So at that point, I actually had to uh, start this project. Nice. So can you give like a, a general story of what, what D.B. Cooper is for anybody who has never heard of this person or the case or anything. Yeah, absolutely. So November 24th, 1971, the day before Thanksgiving, a guy walks into the Portland International Airport. He's wearing a a trench coat, a business suit, and has a briefcase and goes up to the ticket counter, buys a ticket to Seattle in cash. It's $20. Uh, Back then, you didn't have to show ID or anything, so all he had to do was write his name on the ticket, and then the agent would put that in the passenger log. And he writes the name Dan Cooper on the ticket. Uh, Shortly after takeoff from Portland to Seattle, which is about a 45-minute flight, he hands a stewardess a note. She puts it in her pocket. She assumes it's just some guy on a business trip hitting on her again, so she doesn't even bother to read the note. Uh, He grabs her a few minutes later and says, ma'am, you might want to take a look at that note. I have a bomb in my briefcase. Uh, So she reads the note. He's going to hijack the plane, um, demands $200,000, four parachutes. He uh, shows her the bomb at some point. He opens his briefcase. She said it looked like a bomb. There's like some red sticks and some wiring in there. So he wants the money and the parachutes ready before the plane lands in Seattle Uh, In 1971, it took the FBI uh, a couple of hours to gather the money and the parachutes. The airline actually had money ready because it wasn't uncommon for planes to be hijacked at the time, although it was usually for political reasons. So when the plane lands in Seattle, the stewardess gets off, grabs his money and the parachutes, brings it on the plane. He verifies that he got what he asked for. He lets the passengers off. And then it gets a little bit interesting. So he wants to be flown to Mexico City, um, but he had super specific flight instructions. He wanted the plane to stay under 200 miles an hour. He wanted it to fly at 10,000 feet 
with the landing gear down and the flap set to 15 degrees. Uh, the pilots say under these conditions, the plane can't make it to Mexico City. We're going to have to stop and refuel. So then there's some debate on where the plane is going to stop and refuel. Um, they agree we're going to stop and refuel in Reno. Um, so at this point, uh, the plane takes off. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. He asks that the rear air stairs of the plane be down during takeoff. Right. The, the plane he hijacked was a Boeing 727, and it had the rear stairs that would lower from the plane so that when it fly into small airports, they could just load and unload passengers from the plane itself. They don't need a ramp truck or anything to pull up to it. Um, so he said, I want the rear air stairs down on takeoff. The pilots say that it's not possible. They don't think the plane can take off with the rear air stairs down. Um, he tells them that they're wrong, but fine. He'll just lower the rear air stairs once they're in flight. Um, the pilots sort of freaked out about this cause they weren't sure if he opened the rear air stairs in the air, if it's going to cause the plane to crash. So they radio into, uh, the air traffic controller they can't find an answer to it either. So they call Boeing, and Boeing said, yeah, that's actually no problem. We've done some tests doing that, and the rear air stairs uh, can be down on takeoff, and they can be lowered in flight. So D.B. Cooper, or Dan Cooper, knew more about that particular plane than the pilots did. So they take off. He has a stewardess kind of show him real quick how to lower the air stairs. She goes up into the cockpit. And as she looks back, she sees him putting on one of the parachutes. She said it looked like he had put on a parachute many times before. Um, and then they land in Reno. D.B. Cooper's not on the plane, and he's never heard from or seen ever again. And the bomb wasn't there either, right? No, he took the bomb with him. He actually asked for his notes back, yes. too. When he was passing notes to the cockpit, um, I believe one of them was handwritten, and one of them was like letters cut out of a magazine. Uh, if I'm correct on that. Uh, but he asked for those notes back also. The only thing he left on the plane was a black clip-on tie uh, right. that he left on the seat. So I suppose the hype about D.B. Cooper isn't necessarily about all of that, though. It's about who he actually is because at it, the FBI closed the case in 2016 and they still never found who actually did it or but many he, people have come forward saying they did it some people speculate if he even lived or not if, yeah there oh, is yeah, yes yeah if the fbi made, said for a while <laughs> that he died in the jump which I, I mean i i only believe the fbi said that because they couldn't find him well i was listening to one of your episodes in the I, it was episode one the journalist that was talking about the fbi saying that they never found him also said that the fbi originally said that or that he never died or never made the jump survived the jump i'm sorry uh that journalist said that the fbi fbi flipped on the story later on oh yeah they've they've changed their story quite a few times but they said they've investigated thousands of of people in this I'm and sure they have. there have been several people who have confessed to it also which oh, i heard that some there was a wife that came forward um saying that her husband had confessed on his deathbed that he was D.B. Cooper. Uh, Joe Weber? Yes. yes, exactly. And she has spent the rest of her life trying to get this answered, that her husband, Dwayne, was the one who pulled this off. That's crazy. Yeah, it's it's wild. Well, it was interesting, too. The, the thing that interests me about that is the fact they found the 5000 and some dollars years later... Um, that had been in the river, on the coast of a river, wherever it was, and she had said that he had taken her there at one point in their life. Yeah, her story is pretty interesting. Like you said, they found like $5,800 uh, on this beach, Tina Bar, which is a beach off of the Columbia River. And it's west of the flight path, uh, saying you had westward blowing winds at the time. So it doesn't make sense that the money could have got there. It fell out of his bag or... Uh, that's where he landed. I think that's what convinced me the most that he didn't die is the fact that years later that the money was found in not necessarily a place that you would expect from the weather, from the flow of the river, and just all the different 
there's just so many different possibilities, but not very many possibilities make it where the money is there and it makes sense. Oh yeah, absolutely. Everyone I've talked to, you know, you know, I ask them how'd the money end up on Tina Bar, and all of them say the same thing. I don't know. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it's so far outside the rest of the story that there is no explanation for it. I mean, most people I've talked to say, you know, it's a plant or maybe it's dug up from a dredge. But even if it was from a dredge, we don't know how the money would have got there in the first place. So it, it just adds more mystery to the story. What's also interesting is it seemed like he knew that this, the plane could fly with the stairs down. And the Citizen Sleuth website had investigators that say there were... Uh, like precious metals on the tie that he left behind, which suggests that he could have worked at Boeing. Yeah, when the when the tie was finally examined, uh, they found rare and exotic metals and materials on the tie. Uh, specifically, pure titanium is the one that everyone talks about. Um, and in the aviation sector, like Boeing's supersonic transport, uh, they weren't really using pure titanium. They were using an alloyed version of it. Uh, pure titanium at the time was incredibly rare and there was only really a few uses you know industrial chemicals or in certain parts or machining so that's just another thing like you only have these two pieces of evidence you know the money find and the tie really and both of them add more mystery and complexity to the case you know the tie points to very few people would have been in an environment where you have these phosphates and pure titanium Uh, there just wouldn't be a lot of people uh, in those environments, especially in 1971. So it, it, it adds to the mystery for sure of who D.B. Cooper really was. I think people really enjoy it too, because when you read up about it and just, just reading everything that I've read, just doing research for, cause I knew you were coming here and everything. Um, he, everybody said he was a nice guy. He was very calm, cool, collected. Like he knew what he was doing. It wasn't something where, Oh, he just jumped out of the plane and was just doing this spur of the moment. Like it it was definitely planned. He definitely knew what he was doing. Yeah, I I definitely agree with you. And you made a great point there. Everyone said that he was calm, cool, and collected. And I I think that's really important to pay attention to because if you're, you know, they put him in his mid-40s is what eyewitnesses said. If you're a dude in your mid-40s, hijacking a plane, that's a risky proposition and jumping out of it. How many dudes in their mid forties do you guys know that could remain calm, cool and collected while they're trying to pull that off? Well, and then $200,000 today doesn't sound like a lot, but today that's about one and a half million dollars estimated. So that's quite a bit of money to be taking a lot of risk for. There's theories that he could have been uh, military and have been trained in paratrooping as well. Oh, absolutely. There are several suspects who have a history uh, in the military as paratroopers or smoke jumpers or special forces. Or spies. Or spies, yeah. I've heard other, um, just the other theory of it being an inside job with him being a Boeing employee, where um, maybe, I've also heard something of the fact that maybe the pilot was in on it because something about the flight pattern and how could he have known when to jump and things like that. So it's just all very interesting. I think it just, every time you learn more about it, it just gives you more questions than answers. Yeah. <laughs> it, it really does. The more I've looked into this case, the more I'm unsure. When I first started reading about it, I just, the first two books I read sort of pointed to the same suspect. So I thought, okay, well, I know who D.B. Cooper is because I read these two books. And now that I've researched probably 20 suspects real seriously I'm I have no idea Um, there's so little actually known about the case and so little known about the guy who hijacked the plane that you can fit a lot of people into it Uh, you know I could probably make an argument that my grandpa was D.B. Cooper Um, and then everyone else is sort of in this position to prove that it wasn't not necessarily prove that it was right so you see that in all these suspects not necessarily proving that it was this suspect but sort of this defending against a barrage of why it wasn't that guy yeah there was a case file when i originally was talking to you when i said i was going to start researching the first file that i read of this it was like a, a court document 
and it was going through why this person they think is D.B. Cooper is talking about this guy that owned a plane that was never registered and he flew back and forth up to uh, Washington and California. His family like didn't know where he was going, but he said that he was a real estate person or working with real estate companies. And it just, it seemed like it was that guy. Yeah, they all do. And I think a lot of people, when I tell them I'm, I'm doing this D.B. Cooper podcast or I'm interested in it, they'll, they'll say, oh yeah, I know all about the guy that did that. Cause they have, they watched one documentary or they read yeah. one book or read one article that pointed to one suspect. And so that's kind of where they just stopped paying attention to the I've case. I've seen at least five names thrown around and that, that makes me even more skeptical. I don't know. I, I thought I knew the case really well and I thought, okay, you know, here these, there's 20 serious suspects and now like all the time people are emailing me like, right? Hey, did you know about Ed Edwards? And you got to look into Ed Edwards as DB Cooper also. So constantly I'm, I'm learning about new suspects. Oh, Why? You were charging those all day. Audio is rolling. (laughs) (laughs) I was waiting for you to do it. (laughs) Yeah, that's fine. (laughs) Uh, I'm so sorry. What were you saying at the very, very end? That's a great question. Uh, (laughs) I'm not real sure myself either. All right, new topic. (laughs) (laughs) So... Where do you find the guests that you have come on? I've been big fans of the guests I have on my show for quite a while. So most of them have books out on the subject or are just big names on the online Can you get forums. a little closer to the microphone? Uh, names that Thank you. other people involved in the case would recognize. Uh, and like I said, I've been really lucky that the people who are, are big in the case have been willing to come on my show. What uh, what kind of evidence is there to this case other than the tie and did they ever like find the notes or any anything really? No, the only thing that was found was the black clip-on tie he left behind and the $5,800 that was found on Tina Barr. There was a, a placard, I guess, that's on the rear air stairs, like a warning uh, about watching your head or it being lowered that had flown out of the plane when they were lowered. Some some hikers or hunters found it in Castle Rock a few years later. Um, it's just interesting, but not really evidence in the case. What, if there was anything that could come out that would convince you that D.B. Cooper, Dan Cooper, actually did die when he made that jump, what what would it have to be to convince you? A body. A body. A body and the money, his parachute. Uh, If he didn't survive the jump, then we should find a guy with a briefcase, with a parachute. Yeah, there would be plenty of With a bag of money. I mean, it was 25 pounds of money. And like Uh, 40 years ago now, right? Almost 50. Yeah, long time. Yeah, 1971, so it's been 48 years. It would be a skeleton now. <laughs> yeah, and the area where he jumped, you have people hunting there all the time, uh, people walking through there. If there was a body, I think it would have been found. Yeah. And uh, this guy, Marty Andrade, wrote a great book uh, called Finding D.B. Cooper, and in it he uses data from World War II ejections to compare whether or not D.B. Cooper survived the jump. So World War II, you have all these Air Force dudes who are in planes that have been shot down or damaged who have zero parachuting experience or maybe one jump, and they're bailing out of these planes in terrible conditions, you know, the planes falling out of the sky, and the survivability rate of those guys was very high. Uh, so you think 
you know, D.B. Cooper, he jumped out at night in the rain into the woods. Yeah, that's not ideal, but it's it's better than a lot of these World War II pilots and air crew, uh, and their survivability rate was very high. So I believe he concluded in the book that it's like 95% chance that, that D.B. Cooper survived the jump. And, and I tend to agree chances. with him. Yeah. I, I think he was very smart because one of the things that I kind of picked up on or noticed is the timing in which he did it because he did it right before Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. right before Thanksgiving. And I wonder, I also wonder if that maybe hindered the investigation a little bit afterwards because how many people are really going to want to stop spending time with their families during a national holiday to go investigate this or how much effort and time are they actually going to put into this so I always wonder if there was some tiny piece of evidence that maybe they missed that's a great point I agree with you 100% I think he chose this date for a specific reason it gives him an extra long weekend to get back to work by Monday if he does have to get back to work by Monday I wouldn't go back to work (laughs) so he so he won't be noticed missing or anything like that and you know if you're talking about some people have the holiday weekend off. Usually the best people, the brightest people, the people who have been there the longest will tend to have the holiday off. And That's the people who thinking. are newer and not the greatest employees will tend to, oh man, I got to work Thanksgiving this weekend. Yeah, that's how it works in the police force too. Yeah, so you don't have necessarily your top tier air traffic controllers, FBI agents, police officers. Um more than likely, they could be on vacation enjoying Thanksgiving with their family. The uh, first journalist that you had on said that they delayed the search. I, it wasn't like an immediate search. Exactly. They didn't even really know where to look at first because they didn't really know where he jumped. They landed in Reno. He wasn't on the plane. So all they know is he jumped out somewhere. Did the flight crew not know where he jumped? No, they didn't. So they had two planes trying to follow the aircraft, uh, and they were more modern fighter jets. Excuse me. And with how slow that airplane was flying, those fighter jets couldn't do that speed. So they're making giant S-turns around the plane, and they're not able to see him jump or anything. The only reason that there's an idea of where D.B. Cooper landed is at a certain point, uh, the pilots noticed a bump in the pressure in the cabin, and the tail made kind of this little curtsy that actually caused corrective action to be needed. And so they made a note of where this happened and the time it happened. And from there, they theorized that he was standing on the rear air stairs. And when he jumped, the rear air stairs bounced as from the wind and the weight coming off of it. And that's what caused that pressure spike. They actually took a different plane out and flew it over the ocean, put 200 pounds on the back and threw it out to try and recreate this. Um, and they did. So they believed from this information, that's how they know where, where D.B. Cooper jumped out of the plane. Where do you think that was? It's in uh, Ariel Amboy Yakult. Is an Ariel where they have that party every year for D.B. Cooper? Yeah, D.B. Cooper days. <laughs> they had it up until a few years ago. <laughs> I didn't know that they had stopped it. That's kind of disappointing. It is really disappointing. They stopped it because that building, um, it's practically falling down. It's a super old building. Uh, It's not up to any current code or standard or anything like that. So the county had grandfathered it in so they could sell alcohol, they could sell food. But as soon as she sold the business or passed away, it's done. We're not grandfathering in this in anymore. It will have to meet current health and safety standards. So when the owner passed away, Donna Elliott, um, the county took all that away. So when her, for her son to open up the business, it's going to have to be completely rebuilt. I mean, it's kind of like an old shack in the woods that's been turned into a bar. Uh, and to bring that up to modern health and safety standard, it's just, it's not realistic. It would cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. <laughs> How would you celebrate D.B. Cooper? Well, they celebrated him by, they had a live band and everyone would uh, drink Rainier beer, which is the local Washington beer, and uh, talk about D.B. Cooper. He's sort of a folk hero there, you know. He stuck it to the man. Uh, People root for him because no one was physically hurt. 
Um, yeah, I, I, it's stressful. This dude says he has a bomb. You're on a plane. You don't want it to be blown up. But the plane lands, and, and no one's physically hurt. So he didn't commit a murder. It's not like you're on Ted Bundy's side or anything. Uh, he took $200,000 from an airline, and I think 90% of that was insured. So it didn't end up costing the airline all that much. It was like nothing happened. <laughs> yeah. So I know you said that you researched about, I think you said 20 different subjects or you've, I'm sure, so I'm sure you've heard several different stories or theories. What would you say your two, not necessarily that you believe in, but your two favorite theories that you've heard? This is something I like talking about. One of my most favorite is Barb Dayton, uh, born Robert Dayton, first person in Washington state to have gender reassignment surgery in 1966. So, Robert Dayton becomes Barbara Dayton in 1966 and then in 1971 makes herself look like a dude again and then hijacks the plane and pulls it off as as D.B. Cooper. I like that version a lot and I went and met the foremans in person and interviewed them and they befriended Barb Dayton years later and she ended up telling them the story and they got this information out of her. And I always thought it was kind of silly. Uh, it was just a wild out there story. Yeah. And then when I met the foremans and I was talking to them, they're the nicest, greatest people. And they're passionate about the story. So sitting there and having them tell me the story firsthand, it, it turned it from something that was silly and ridiculous to something that I was really interested in. And I walked out of there like, I believe them. Um, and when I walked into their house, I was like, this is ridiculous. Come on, give me a break. But when I walked out, I was like, you know, they're, they're great people. So I, I believe them. It's hard, you know, when you're sitting across from someone and they're telling you something uh, and they're passionate about it and they believe it. Yeah. What, what about the gender reassignment made it convincing? Well, nothing about the gender reassignment made it convincing, but what it made it convincing to me was just that they're good, honest people and they're telling the truth. It seemed like they genuinely believed the story they were telling you. I think it was yeah. more people probably wouldn't expect D.B. Cooper to actually be a woman. Oh, no, probably not. Yeah, and that's one thing they said is, you know, the reason D.B. Cooper was never found is because they were looking for a man. <laughs> but... It was a woman. I think that would be a great twist to the story. Yeah. Yeah. And she told him all these stories about how she did all like all this badass stuff when she was a guy and lived this rough, hard life. And when she passed away, they went to try and verify some of these stories and found out they were true. So if she was telling the truth about, you know, being a prisoner of war in the Philippines, was she telling the truth about being D.B. Cooper? But she, uh, So she did come out and say that she was D.B. Cooper? Yeah. Yeah, Barb Dayton is a good one. And then the other one that's real popular right now is Walter Recca. And his story I thought was really interesting because all of them, D.B. Cooper tends to be this methodical, very well-planned out, very smart guy, you know, an engineer or a scientist. And then the Walter Recca story is here's kind of like this bumbling criminal that comes along who happens to get lucky every step of the way. Uh, he didn't know that the plane, the rear air stairs went down on the 727. The stewardess told him that. He didn't know that it could be lowered in flight. He just tried it out. Uh, so I like his story because it's refreshing from that angle. Everyone else is, oh yeah, D.B. Cooper's a genius. He planned this all out months and years in advance. The Walter Recca story, he wrote it on a napkin in a bar and did the whole thing in the first place because he wanted to commit a crime with a parachute. <laughs> and there aren't a lot of crimes you can commit with a parachute and get away. Weren't there quite a few copycats as well after? There was. And one of the copycats from Utah, uh, Floyd, Floyd, Richard Floyd McCoy, uh, he pulled something off just a few years later, uh, got 500000 from it, jumped out of the plane somewhere outside Salt Lake City in, in Utah uh, with 500000 using... A handgun and a fake grenade, if I believe correctly. Uh, and then, but he's caught a few days later. Uh, he only spent a couple of the dollars, but it was sloppy. 
Um, and he did a lot of the things this, like the exact same way. Like he tried to do it exactly the way D.B. Cooper did. He had a bunch of notes written beforehand. He left them in the airport um, and then somebody else went and found him. So he had these ransom notes ready to go. He leaves them in the terminal <laughs> uh, and ends up doing it a little bit differently on the plane. He's recognized. Uh, he ends up breaking out of jail at some point. I want to say with a gun he made out of like soap and plaster, dental plaster, and then ends up in a chase with the FBI in a shootout and is killed. The FBI agent that killed him said, um, when I shot uh, Richard McCoy, I shot D.B. Cooper because uh, he believed he was the same person. But I don't, most people tend to disagree. Most people said D.B. Cooper was in his mid-40s. I believe Richard McCoy was in his late 20s at the time of the hijacking. Uh, and the physical description doesn't really match up. Most prominently, Richard McCoy has these uh, prominent ears that stick out. And if you were being asked about, hey, this guy hijacked the plane, tell me about him, it's a feature that you would list at the top. Was you know, hey, I noticed this dude had huge ears that stuck out. Was that the individual that... Uh, that they believe did that over spring break. Um, it was like a high school student or not college, 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 college student. student. No, there was a guy who was, all right, are you talking about Bill Mitchell who was on the plane with DB Cooper? I'm not the, sure. The There's quite student? a few there. Yeah. There was a, a college student who was on the plane with DB Cooper. And the only reason he got a good look at him was because one of the stewardesses went and sat by Cooper after he gave the notes um, just sort of to be there if you had any demands, if you had anything to say. And this passenger college student, Bill Mitchell, was upset. Like, hey, there's this good-looking stewardess. Why is she giving all of her attention to this old guy? Like, I'm, I'm much better looking than him. Uh, so that's kind of the only reason he, he really noticed him and paid attention to him um, was because he was wondering, well, you know, why would a stewardess pay attention to this old dude? Uh, the individual that I was referring to is actually another, it may have been a copycat that they thought was D.B. Cooper. It was a, a college student, and I was watching this BuzzFeed uh, true crime thing, and they were referencing an item that was left behind that his family referenced that they the FBI didn't mention was there. It was like, they thought it could be like a high school, or not a high school, a college patch thing. I'm not sure. It, it doesn't sound familiar to me, but there were several other copycat hijackings. And there were, like I said, there were a lot of hijackings going on at the time uh, on planes, but mostly for political reasons. Not many people were hijacking the plane and then jumping out uh, until D.B. Cooper. But then I think there were maybe a half dozen sort of copycat hijackings that happened. Could you imagine his... being on a plane that got hijacked? It would be a drag. Oh, man. <laughs> but yeah i mean they could he could walked on the plane with, he walked on the plane with a a briefcase that had a bomb in it like, I mean, he didn't even have to show id it could have not even been a bomb yeah, it could, could have, have just looked fake. like a bomb it wasn't there afterwards who could say that it was even actually a bomb yeah i think most people agree that the bomb was fake although the, the foreman's talking about barb dayton she told them that the bomb was real because I don't do anything half-assed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so when we were discussing doing this, we, we talked about potentially talking about how our podcasts work. And another topic was uh, really interesting to me that you mentioned, uh, the democratization of media. Yes, that's something I'm very interested in. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I feel like both of these things will tie into each other. So I didn't do any research on that, so you're going to have to <laughs> fill me in a little bit more on that one. It's it's pretty basic, I think. It is pretty basic. I mean, I'm I might be a little bit older than you guys. I'm I'm 33 years old, and a little bit. When Almost I was years. in high school, the idea that I could have my own radio show, it was impossible. Um, there were a bunch of gatekeepers to doing it. Um, and yeah, maybe you could go to college and end up in some local market doing top 40 or something like that. But it that. would be somebody else's show. But it would be somebody else's show. Like some company. For me to have a radio show about D.B. Cooper, I would have to take my idea, go to a radio station, talk to a programming director, pitch him my idea, 
and hope that he was into it, that, you know, some random dude who has zero experience can do a crazy niche radio show about D.B. Cooper. Yeah. Uh, it's just not going to happen. But now, thanks to, to, to podcasts, to YouTube, uh, to all the various technology, anybody can have their own radio show. Anybody can have their own TV show. So even social media, social media has been very beneficial for finding people like throwing out that you have a show marketing it. That's, that's how we met found you on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I don't even use Twitter that much. <laughs> yeah, me neither. The only reason I did it is because people told me about, Oh yeah, you could promote your show and do this and that. And so I got on there. I'm like, I wonder if there's anybody else podcasting locally to me. Uh, maybe I could get on their show, you know, practice being on mic and, Hopefully tell some other people, hey, listen to my show too. Well, it's interesting that you talk about that because since you said that you're quite a bit older than us, I'm 22, Mm -hmm. so about a decade apart, I can say that I don't consume news. I consume news completely differently than 10 years ago. How Like you would consume news as a 22-year-old because I don't watch television anymore because... It's all YouTube. It's all YouTube. YouTube. I watch everything online. I read. um, If I'm reading articles, I'm reading it on a website online. I'm not looking at the newspaper. I'm not watching the television. So I think it's interesting because um, I now I get the same information from multiple different sources instead of I think people were having one source that they had all of their information coming from. And so I think our generation thinks a little differently about news. It's like, it's an influx of like this paper, this paper, this paper, instead of just like the New York times or whatever, like there's five different papers and then like 20 people reporting on what that paper said and what actually happened and like other, other sources. It's, it's crazy how, how broad it's become. Well, and then I think I'm at least, I can't speak for everybody in my generation, but I'm at least very hypersensitive to who is talking about that story. Like, if are they left-leaning? Are they right-leaning? Are they central? Like, what is their motive behind telling me this story? And I don't think people used to think about it that way. Yeah, you you didn't really have a lot of choice. I mean, at one point, there were three networks on TV. um, So you got to pick one of those three options for what you were going to watch, what news source... Uh, and then you had, you know, cable news, your newspaper. But now, I mean, there really is no gatekeeper. If you want to start your own news organization, you can. And, I mean, does it make you any less legitimate than the New York Times? Well, there still are gatekeepers. Like, we can't look away at Apple as potentially a monopoly and Google potentially as a monopoly or Amazon potentially as a monopoly. That's, that's actually where I host all of my content, but there are competitors like Stitcher or like, um, this is just for podcasts, but like there's similar things for music. There's, there's different companies that are competing, but those ones, they, they are the equivalent of gatekeepers in our time. But with podcasts, you're on so many different. If Apple stopped producing, or not producing is the wrong word, if Apple stopped hosting podcasts tomorrow, um, people would move to a different different platform. Right. I mean, one thing I like about podcasts for sure is that, you know, I host it and then it goes on 50 different platforms. Yeah. I don't say, listen to my podcast exclusively on CastBox because uh, it's on 50 different apps. You can get it wherever you want. What hosting site do you use? I use Podbean. Podbean? What about you? I use Podmeo. <laughs> I've never even heard of that one. <laughs> I've never heard of either. I've. Uh, you have to apply to get it onto iTunes and uh, Google, and I got it on Stitcher. I don't know how to get it on like Spotify or any of the other stuff. I'm on YouTube. Spotify, Podbean puts it on Spotify, but... Spotify, I mean, this is me talking out of my ass, so I'm probably wrong about all of it. But from my understanding, uh, Spotify kind of just hosts it in one place, and then all of the listens are streamed from that one. 
So you don't really get downloads from Spotify. I get streams from them. So it's kind of a different data subset. So all of my other uh, downloads are in this one place. They're nice to look at and show you everything. And then off to the side, it's like, oh, yeah, uh, you had 300 people listen this month on Spotify. Interesting. Hmm. Does Podbean give you the option to monetize? I think it does a couple of different ways. Um, I, for this particular podcast, I've, I have no plans to monetize it. Yeah, it's it's kind of, there's so many out there and there's so many people doing it. I have zero expectation of making money, but the idea of potentially doing it is very enticing because I would like to do this as a career. Me too. I would love to quit my day job and just talk to people on mic. Yeah. That would definitely... Uh, it's fun be the goal people are interesting this is my first time i'd like to do it what do you think of the different ways people are monetizing their podcasts um i've noticed like uh joe rogan's show uh he has like specific advertisers that i've seen on other podcasts as well like i've seen like me undies is doing something or like um uh, Dollar Shave Club, like stuff like that, like or like legal zooms, yeah, sponsors. Mm-hmm. But those are like paid advertisements that that they put in there, and I'm okay with that because as with a podcast, you have the option to just skip past that if you choose to. And some people actually do buy stuff from those advertisers. Um, I'm not a fan of like the paid for content for podcasts. I think. I like the free open source kind of way of this uh, media form because there's so much information and so much misinformation. I think it's, it's great that people have so many different sources to find what's happening in the world or just to hear about like things like DB Cooper. Yeah, I agree. I've, I've thought about this quite a bit uh, cause this one, I just figured it would be a learning experience and then I would go do a different podcast after this. And looking at all the ways people are monetizing their show, both with with ads or uh, Patreon or crowdfunding, and I'm just, I'm not sure what would be the best way to go, both like from a, a creative perspective and, yeah. you know, making money from it. You know, I I've put a lot of my own money into it. a lot of times, like in, in terms of people that I see that are successful in making money off podcasts or doing news or whatever is variety. They have lots of different ways that they're monetizing off of it. Like, for example, one person that I watch quite a bit um, on YouTube in particular is Philip DeFranco. And he monetizes with, he has sponsors, but then he also has his own um, company that he started recently where now he's selling beard oils and just now, and he sells merch for his show and just lots of different ways. And another thing he talks about a lot is you have to have the variety you have to have yes. multiple different avenues or else you can't you can't depend on just one thing no. like you can't depend on for example he gets demonetized from youtube a lot so he can't depend on youtube to be his only source yeah for that, monetization that's actually one of my concerns because the topics that i like to have on this show specifically it's it's called your thoughts so I don't have control over what people are going to say or what they want to talk about. And a lot of times we want to talk about politics Mm -hmm. and that's, that's very divisive. That's controversial sometimes. And I don't want to get demonetized. I also want to have the opportunity to be monetized, which is hard in itself. I'm sure the mics are picking up that thunder. Um, I hope they are. But what I hate in a podcast is I'll listen to something and then there's a break. And then, oh, if you want to find out what happened in my interview with Tina, go to patreon.com and subscribe. Mm. Or, yeah. Where there's like this, uh, at the end of a show, like now the host begs for money. And I just, I hate that. Yeah. Both, both like from a creative perspective and being a fan from the show, it just takes me right out of I it. I think people like it when they can tell that you're having fun with it when they can tell that it's not something that you're doing just because you want the money for it, when they, it's something that you're passionate about, so it doesn't matter if you're making the money off it. So I, I understand what you mean in terms of like the problem begging is for it. When you're doing something like this, people underestimate how much time and effort doing just this one show will actually take. 
I'm going to have to edit all three of these audio files, the two video files, and then market it on social media. That's like a full-time job. It takes work. Absolutely, it is. Yeah, I mean, luckily I have a, a guy, Russell Colbert, my friend, edits the show for me. Uh, and he does a great job. But, I mean, like you're saying, I've had people ask me, how many hours do you spend working on it per hour of content that comes out? And I thought about it for a minute. I'm like, oh, probably about three hours. Then, oh, no, well, not if you count, like, the time I spent driving and the time I spent doing this and <laughs> yeah. the time I spent doing this. It really it adds, adds up. up. Yeah, it's, I put so much into this. And there are times where I'm so frustrated by, like, this is a complete waste of my time. I'm putting my money and my time into this. And you know, like, sometimes it, I feel like I'm not getting anything out of it. Does it matter? But it does matters it matter? to me. Yeah. But does it matter? <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think people can Very tell. Conflicting. Like yeah. I said, I think people can tell when it's something that you're doing just because it's something you're passionate about or something that you're putting the time and effort into it because you want to. And I think people gravitate t- towards that. I think people gravitate towards people that are doing things just to do it, just there's, to experience it. There's also a definite need for honest, truthful people who are seeking the legitimate truth or whatever, what, Whatever that means right now. I definitely think people, especially in like my generation, are hungry for transparency. Pe- transparency for things that they believe are truthful or stories that they believe are truthful, journalism that's truthful and doesn't have a bias. And I think it's hard to find nowadays, unfortunately. Yeah, when I first started watching YouTube or listening to podcasts, I would sort of be turned off by the fact that it was this amateurish content. Um, and now I almost kind of look for it like, yeah. oh, I like that. Or I'll hear something and I'm like, oh, I know he edited that out. I could hear that, that he did that. Or Yeah, you, you can definitely tell like NPR, the production quality is up here. Joe Rogan's podcast, that's like midline. But like starting out, you can tell and you can tell like the progression of it as well. Yeah, but I always, I always point out if the content is good... I don't care so much about the production value or the quality of it. Yeah. You know, I'll read a, an article that has spelling errors and it's grammatically wrong all over the place if the content is good and I won't care. I mm-hmm. hate the spelling errors. <laughs> but <laughs> It drives me crazy. <laughs> like, these journalists have editors. <laughs> Maybe that journalist didn't. They're starting out. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like, if I'm reading some automotive blog or something that I'm into and there's spelling errors all over the place... If it's something that I think is really interesting, I almost don't notice that. Yeah. Um, whereas if I'm reading a, an article from Idaho Press or something and I see a spelling mistake, it's like a glaring, like, oh, look at that. I found that. I'll give it a pass if it's one. But <laughs> if it's like, I hate when I read an article and I see the sentence is the same sentence. It's just a run-on sentence of the same thing that they they just, they edited it. Maybe you should be an editor. I thought about it. <laughs> <laughs> Anything to make money right now. <laughs> but it's it's just crazy how many podcasts are popping up too. I've noticed that too. Yeah, it, anyone can do it. And I, I think a lot of those people, I was just talking to somebody else about this. You see a lot of podcasts that get started and then there's only five episodes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because I think... It's you know, hard. It's not. It's, it is so hard. And anyone can do it. If you have an iPhone, you could produce a podcast completely on your iPhone. Yep. Um, and get it out to everyone. Do everything. Do all the production on your phone. But it's it's also expensive if you want to do it more professionally. Like I have a music background, so I knew exact and a, a film background, kind of. So I knew exactly what I needed to do this to where it would sound really good like high production quality just like from an audio engineering standpoint i knew i wanted it to sound good that was like 500 dollars just to drop on this equipment that's that's crazy to just start out yeah i I probably have like 700 bucks into equipment it doesn't even include the camera no the video was actually a secondary element that we added on later has it been successful for you? I mean, I put my I podcasts up on YouTube. I think video is more YouTube. effective than audio, honestly. It definitely gets more views. 
I I saw this video my wife was looking at it was how to corn do cornrows in hair. And I was looking at it for a second. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I'm like, holy shit, this has 280,000 views. Yeah. Like, yeah. this is two ladies in their living room. Uh, hey, this is how you cornrow hair. 280,000 people watched that. I mean, my, my original goal with my podcast was that I would get 1,000 downloads. And when I hit that, I was just like so stoked. Like, yeah, I did it. Like, I, I did it. Um, but Or I could do a cornrow video in my living room. And get 280,000 views. <laughs> like, that kind of drives me crazy. Like, not only, like, who would watch that, but... How like, did you get that many people to watch it? Yes! And I, I have a couple YouTube videos up, and the one that has the most views was a joke that I made in, in five minutes with my daughter. We, we made some Tide Pods joke video, um, and it had, like, 20,000 views to watch a few that. days later. <laughs> what? There's definitely something to be said about how things are in terms of trending nowadays because you mentioned it was like a Tide Pod video. Yeah. And that's definitely something that would get looked up because it would be considered trending, quote unquote. So I definitely think it's like if we were talking about the presidential election right now, we might get more views versus... Like we're talking about D.B. Cooper and podcasts. It's not even necessarily about the conversation itself. It's about like YouTube algorithms are based on like the uh, the title of the video. So if you like say some crazy controversial shit in the title and swap out your uh, video image constantly, it'll keep bringing it to the top. Yeah. People... Uh... But then you don't want to subscribe to somebody who does that. No, (laughs) because it seems tacky. Yeah, it does. Then it seems like you're just doing it to follow the to get the most out of the algorithm. Well, the it's just clickbaity. Yeah, nobody likes clickbait. And yet we all click on it. (laughs) (laughs) That's why we all don't like it because it tricks us every time. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's almost like you have to be dishonest to get noticed yeah that's an interesting way to put it but then once you do that then you you've already lied to the audience before you get started exactly you've already misrepresented yourself Hmm. (laughs) so what do you do what's the what's the answer to get people to listen to your content tyler uh for me personally my my whole thing is i always seek the truth and I want to be honest and I want to understand things. And I'm hoping that by doing what I'm doing, people see that and they try to get information from that instead of going and watching other stuff or listening to other stuff. This is primarily audio. People are going to be listening. So hello. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess I've just thought of it as, like with the Cooper Vortex, I I made that show because I wanted to listen to a D.B. Cooper podcast. And there would be um, a D.B. Cooper episode on a podcast that covers ghosts and aliens and Bigfoot. And then they would do a D.B. Cooper episode. And I was so already entrenched in it that it just wasn't enough. And they'd spend the first 20 minutes of the episode going over what happened in the hijacking and I can only listen to that so many times, so I'd fast forward that, and then there'd be a discussion, and they'd have a suspect, and they would cover it all in 45 minutes. And I, I was so deep into this, I'm like, I need a podcast that's just about D.B. Cooper. Yeah, so like, I we thought the basic. Like, you have the, in your intro, you give the general story of what happened, but there's so much more to it. And I didn't realize that. I thought we were just going to talk about the general play-by-play event. Oh, yeah. I didn't want to cover the hijacking really at all. Um, But I thought if... Well, once I actually went down the rabbit hole, though, I realized there's so much more. There's there's an incredible depth to this. Oh, yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. But it's... I I just wanted to make the content that I wanted. And so I think... I think, you know, that'll work for me. If, If I'm enjoying it, then hopefully there are other people out there that do also. That goes back to what I was saying earlier. Like, as long as you're genuine and as long as you're doing something that you're 
you're doing it just because you want to do it, then I think people will be attracted to that. I mean, just especially just people of my generation who are hungry for people that are genuine or hungry for people that aren't just doing things for the views or just doing things to make money or just do, I mean, something can be said for people that just do things to have fun or because they enjoy it because they're passionate about it. Yeah. This podcast came out of a two hour discussion on politics and my perspective on what is happening and how it's misrepresented by mainstream media and how history is just also misrepresented. So it's, it's just, there's constant things happening that people don't understand context to. And my, my guitarist at the time, him and I had that conversation and he's like, why don't you start a podcast? So I did, I just did it and it's worked out pretty good so far. It's heavily inspired by Joe Rogan. I've referenced him three times now. <laughs> oh, I listen to almost every episode. Of that. I mean, I listen to like 50 hours a week of podcasts because yeah. my job, I'm completely alone. In, so In 2017, I listened to podcasts constantly. Ben Shapiro, Joe Rogan, doc, uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson, uh, Brett Weinstein, Weinstein and Eric Weinstein. Like all of these people, like the whole intellectual dark web. Thing. I was just going to say that. Yeah, they inspired me to 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 further seek out the truth because I was already doing that. But then all these people were pointing out things that I was noticing as well and had huge platforms. And I wanted to be part of that. Yeah, I, I think podcasts are great. I've learned more listening to podcasts than I, I did in school, really. I agree. <laughs> well, uh, I don't and, know about school. And it, it gives you Maybe the opportunity to hear somebody else's perspective. Uh, that you wouldn't normally, uh, and you can listen to something on the extreme left and the extreme right of any issue. Yeah, uh, and it, it's there. It helps you realize how diverse individuals' uh, perceptions of everything are, because everybody thinks about things very differently. Oh yeah, and everyone's looking at it from their own perspective and with a different life and everything. We all have our own lens. Yeah. The lens of perception. (laughs) (laughs) It's raining really hard outside now. Yeah, it's so humid too. I know I'm sweating. It's not attractive. What are some challenges you've had with with producing your show and getting it out there? Um, it's really difficult to get people to notice. Especially since the format that I'm doing is an hour-long show. A lot of people don't want to sit through that. But the people who do want to sit through that are usually the ones who I have on. (laughs) The ones who stay. Yeah. Yeah. Why stick to an hour? Why put, oh, my show's going to be an hour. Why do that? Well, I've been thinking about recently doing segments of it as well. Because the hour-long conversation spans very... uh, very many different topics so I could cut segments in and then feature those but I feel like an hour-long conversation you can talk about a lot of different things and you start to understand that person better it just seems like in in podcasting or on YouTube there isn't a time limit so I agree I, I was just wondering why why stick to that hour format. We originally thought three hours like Joe Rogan, but other people were doing an hour, and I felt like that was a good timeline. We thought about doing two hours, but it's just it's so long to actually sit there and do it. Two hours time. is a long time, and it, it depends on the person. I mean, some people are able to hold a conversation real well, and other people aren't. You know, I've interviewed people who had unique speaking habits. Yeah, um, and that. <laughs> that can be difficult. It, it adds another level of complexity to doing. I'm a very introverted person. It's hard to even do this. That was another reason why I started this show because I have a hard time communicating with people and I wanted to try to talk to people and get out of your head. Yeah. And for some reason this works really well, <laughs> but, uh, just about the equipment, uh, the cameras run, one of them runs at 1920 by 1080. Uh, it runs like that for 30 minutes in 30-minute segments. Mm-hmm. So 
we have to stop in the middle and restart the equipment. And uh, that one actually runs if I if I do uh, same qual uh, same format video format same uh, dimensions it'll run like eleven minute segments. So constantly doing that for more than an hour is really frustrating. <laughs> have you had more luck with your show on YouTube than you have on various podcast formats? Looking at the statistics on how, how much people download and listen, it definitely has more um, coverage on audio format. But video is more enticing to look at. You can listen to a podcast anywhere while you're doing anything, though, and that seems a lot more convenient. Yeah, that's that's why I love the medium so much. You know, I can I can be in my garage working on something while being entertained or educated uh or driving a car or doing the dishes. That's how I got into it. I <clears throat> I was listening to them constantly at work as I was allowed to, so I was just constantly learning things from other people. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's it's tough to watch YouTube videos while you drive, so yeah. Podcast is pretty nice. Not recommended. <laughs> I think for, for me, one of the things I've struggled with the most is I've wanted to release episodes on a schedule. Like I'm going to have an episode out every two weeks. That's what it's going to be. Yeah. And then just trying to make my schedule work with guests. And then I have a full-time job outside of doing this and a family. <laughs> So sometimes it's hard to, to find time to release shows it's, on a schedule and then I get stressed out about it. And, yeah. Oh man, I failed. I didn't get that episode out on Monday. It sucks. And everyone, I'm going to be letting everyone down. But then I'm like, well, who, who cares? Who gives a shit? Yeah. Is anyone even listening to this? <laughs> I'm going to get 10 views anyway. <laughs> <laughs> 10 people be real upset. Yeah, uh, scheduling is definitely a hard part uh, because doing this, doing this on a Sunday, I've always thought like, well, we did it that day, so maybe I can edit it and then it'll be ready by next Sunday where I have another gust come on and that one will get released like it was done that uh, that day and then we'll have another one next Sunday, but it never works out like that. It's It takes at least a full week of editing and listening to it over and over and watching it and making sure everything is good, especially with the, the video format, because I'm trying to also get better at the video editing uh, stuff. So doing like animation stuff and like a good intro and outro and all of that. It just becomes a whole production. Yeah, I haven't done anything with video yet. It's yeah, it's a whole nother realm. I recommend it though. It's pretty fun. It's more interesting. Like it's interesting hearing yourself because you don't know what you sound like. And then listening back and hearing yourself talk is interesting, but watching yourself, like the mannerisms that you do and like the, just the behavioral aspects of conversating is really fascinating. Yeah, that's a good point. I haven't, I haven't done anything like that on video and then like with this one, you'll, you'll see it. how you act. Oh, yeah. I can't wait to watch myself <laughs> on this. <laughs> I'm sure there's plenty of people that watch or listen to your podcast and think, what does Dan look like? Or Darren, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm so sorry. Yeah, no one knows what Dan Cooper looks like. <laughs> I've always wondered what Dan looks like. Yeah, I guess that's another reason why I was so into radio. You know, it does give you sort of some anonymity, at least. Uh, it's just your voice out there. <laughs> nice, Randy. <laughs> I know I'm sweating and it's raining outside. How does that make sense? <laughs> so, I think we've probably done about an hour after the audio cut out. So, um, would you like to plug your podcast? Absolutely, I would. Uh, it's the Cooper Vortex. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts from. 
Uh, we're the Cooper Vortex on Twitter. We're the Cooper Vortex on Facebook. You can email us, dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, check out the show. It's free. And in my opinion, it's pretty awesome. Calling all citizens sleuths. <laughs> <laughs> Where did the name come from? The Cooper Vortex. That's a great question. So uh, when I started this, I, I didn't really have an idea what I was going to name the show. But everyone refers to it as the Cooper Vortex, um, this community. Because once you get sucked in, you can't get out of it. Uh, when I interviewed Tom Kay who's the scientist who did a bunch of the forensic work on the case. He said he thought it would be a fun project to do for about six months and was interested in it. Um, now it's been 10 years, and he's still pretty actively involved in it. Uh, so hopefully that doesn't happen to me, but you know, I'm already <laughs> a few years in at this point. But I, th- I thought, you know, I, I only really want to do this podcast till the end of the year. I don't want to be doing D.B. Cooper forever. I don't want to put my wife through that. I mean, already <laughs> she just rolls her eyes when I talk about D.B. Cooper. Oh. Have you thought about doing other things? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'd like to do uh, a, a different interview show after this, not necessarily focused on one thing specifically, just people I'd be interested in talking to. Yeah. I guess we'll see what the future holds. Yeah. Thank you, Darren Schaefer. <laughs> Thank you, Tyler. Appreciate it. And I want to thank coming. I want to thank Harley for co-hosting as well. This is first time, so you did great. Oh, thanks! Great job. I was definitely nervous. Not going to lie about it. <laughs> that concludes your thoughts podcast. Your thoughts podcast. Oh, goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>